Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So let's fill in uh, a little bit of the background as we pick up, because we're actually picking up in the middle of a letter. We ended last week on verse 12 in 2 Thessalonians um, 2. Uh, so uh, we are going through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, and we ended last week in verse 12 of chapter 2. And uh, last week, we started in 2 Thessalonians, and then we ended in Matthew 25. And the reason why I did that is because when Paul is talking in 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, he's outlining a series of end time events. And those events include some pretty profound events taking place on the earth, not just locally in one country or one city, but globally. It's happening all around the entire world. And those things are persecution. Everywhere you look, the people of God are being persecuted. Two, it is deception. Everywhere you look, there is an increase of deception and it is worldwide. And everybody seems to love deception and lies. So those are the the first two. There's persecution, there's deception, and then the last thing is apostasy or a falling away or a general growing cold in our love for God within the church. So these are the things that Paul is painting for us. The closer we get to Jesus' return, here are some of the seasonal markers you can tell. How do you know you're getting into fall? The weather starts changing. The leaves start turning color. They start falling off of the trees. Leaves aren't falling off of the trees in spring. They're falling off of the tree in fall. That's how you know it's fall. The idea that we are in a season coming up to the return of Jesus where we're gonna see deception on a global scale and persecution on a global scale and apostasy or falling away on a global scale, these things being taught by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2 are also being taught by by Jesus in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. So that's the reason why we went in that direction, because Paul is setting up, here's the events you can expect, and then we looked over at Jesus in Matthew 24, and he says, here's the things you can expect, and you look at him, you're like, oh, that's the same stuff. So Paul is letting us know what Jesus is teaching. But then after Matthew 24, when we get into Matthew 25, there is this parable about being prepared for what's coming. So you've got these events, well, what do you do with these events that are coming? Well, you get prepared. And so this this idea that Jesus said the same thing Paul said, and then Jesus followed up with this encouragement to uh, be prepared, to not be idle, we're picking up in the letter in verse uh, chapter three today, and Paul is gonna do the very same thing. I just paused and we didn't get there. That's the reason why we ended with Matthew 25, because this model of here's the events and here's what you need to do about it, Paul is doing the same thing. Here's the events, and now we're getting today into here's what you're supposed to do about it, okay? So that's essentially what 2 Thessalonians 3 is all about. It's about the oncoming persecution, deception, and apostasy that's coming to the earth, 
and how we cannot, in that season, allow it to move us into idleness. That's the, that's the, the focus of chapter three. Now, when I say that, you, you, the initial question is, well, well, how does that work? What, why would, if you're telling me that like, okay, well like, there's coming deception, and there's coming, like I would naturally think like I need to be more on guard. Why would, a nat- why would Paul need to take time, and why would Jesus need to teach a parable in 25 after all of these events? Why would we need to talk about being idle? Because there is a way that this message can affect you that is the opposite of the way Jesus wants it to affect you. You following? Jesus wants this message to wake you up, to get you alert. But there's another way that this message could land on your heart and you can become so preoccupied with all of the signs of the times that you take your eyes off of Jesus because you're too busy looking at the signs, right? You spend most of your time watching the news. What's happening in Israel? All of your focus and your attention is, is, is how bad it's getting and what are we boycotting today? All of your attention is focused in on the signs that we are told it's coming. All of your, all of your affection and your attention is po- focused towards like, man, can you believe how, how bad churches have gotten? I can't find a single church that's teaching the truth anymore. And so I'm just not gonna go. That's the other way that this can land. When this message comes and we're told, hey, here's some of the things that can happen. One of the natural responses can be, well, I'm so enamored with all the signs that I, I, that's what I give my heart to. Just being this weird YouTuber who just stands up there and tells everybody about how bad it is and how bad it's gonna get. And never talk about the joy that's found in giving your heart to the Lord. But the other side of this is you can, be so, you can become so disillusioned at the level of deception in the world and in the church that you get caught up in the turning away and without even realizing it, you end up being one of the ones who exits the church and you think you're doing it on good grounds. Man, everything's so bad, I'm just gonna leave. And you forsake the gathering of the saints. All of that that I just described, Paul would lump under this one word, idleness. Being caught up because of the events of this world in such a way that you stop being active and you just lean back into being idle. You stop serving, you stop talking about Jesus, you stop gathering with the saints, you stop going to church, you stop reading your Bible, you stop praying because your assumption is either things are so bad, I don't even know where to start, I don't even wanna be caught up in it, or, like this church is probably caught up in, you're assuming, well, the return is so soon that I'm not even gonna do anything anymore. I'm gonna quit my job. I'm gonna rack up my credit card. I'm not gonna plan for retirement. I'm not gonna put things in place so that in 10 years from now, I will be in a better, spiritually more mature place than I am right now because he's gonna be back in seven. What's the point? And this is why I gave the warning at the end of last message. I told you last week that we should be living with a sense of of imminency, that that, that this thing, his return, the day of the Lord, it could happen very soon. And you should live with that expectation. But if that expectation doesn't drive you to hard work, if it drives you to idleness, then the message is landing in the wrong way, okay? 
So that's what we're gonna cover today in 2 Thessalonians 3. The warning that Paul is giving the church to not let this message drive you into idleness, to not caring, to quitting your job, to, not pay, to, to leaving the church. Don't let it make you disillusioned. Don't let it drive you to put your rear end in the couch and just sit and wait for the day that it's gonna come and like stop serving, stop doing all the things that God has called you to do. Because here's the thing, when Jesus returns, he's not gonna reward you for how little that you did. He's not gonna reward those that sat around and just waited. There are so many parables about God, about a, uh, a person who's in charge of a vineyard, giving certain talents to specific people and coming back and judging them based off of what they did with their talents. God rewards hard work, not laziness. And Paul has some harsh words for people who in their Christian posture spend most of their days being lazy Christians, okay? So that's where we're heading. But before we get there, we have to finish 2 Thessalonians 2. So let's go to 2 Thessalonians 2. We're gonna pick up in verse 13. And then as we get into three, we'll circle back around to this this warning about becoming idle. So pick up, uh, we'll put the verses up here on the screen, 2 Thessalonians 2, we're gonna start in verse 13. It says this, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, that word connects everything he said before, you have, you have a, a posture, you have a, a, uh, a status or an identity. Because of that, there's something you need to do about it. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. All right. Now, in order to understand what he's talking about here, we have to back up to what he was addressing in 9 through 12. And this is the reason why it's unhelpful to do ongoing Bible study by just opening and let's look at this verse. Because this book is built off of a story that expands and builds on itself over thousands of years. And even in Paul's letters, as he's writing, it's unhelpful for us to just build theologies around a couple verses. You have to understand them in context. Why is Paul giving this edification for them to stand firm? Because he just, in verses nine through 12, was talking about a different kind of people in the world. In nine through 12, which is what we talked about last week, he says at the end of the world, Satan is gonna empower this guy named the Antichrist. And this antichrist figure is going to do signs and wonders in the entire world. He will have some kind of power to perform signs and wonders and people are gonna go like, we should follow that guy. Look what he did. Look what he's able to do. 
It's very similar to when uh, Moses and Aaron are standing before Pharaoh and Moses performs these signs with his staff and then Pharaoh brings in uh, his magicians and they perform very similar miracles. It's a way of dumbing down or um, uh, mocking or being some kind of imposter uh, symbol or miracle to what God's authentic thing is. The enemy loves being an imposter and trying to fool people. So we're told that this Antichrist figure is gonna have some kind of way to do signs and wonders that is just gonna baffle the world. And what's gonna happen is when he starts baffling the world and deceiving the nations, the nations are gonna become in love with this deception. Now why are they falling for a deception? Why do they don't just fall for it, but why do they love the deception and the lies? Because since the garden Mankind loves lies. And it just builds on itself with every generation. And so even now, what, what you have right now is news reporters who will literally, on live news, say things that are not true, and the public will say, I love that. Give me more of that. There is worldwide deception, and there is worldwide deception because worldwide, everyone loves deception. See, if people hated deception, when it came across, the first thing we say is like, I don't like that. Like, let's get rid of this stuff. I don't want to keep consuming it. But we're in a posture now as a society where we love lies and deception so much, we start looking for it even when we don't realize it. It's the thing that the world is hungry for. And so what's happening is because the world is hungry for deception, when the Antichrist shows up on the scene and feeds them worldwide deception, they just, mm, they just gobble it up, they love it. And the reason why is because they don't love truth, they love lies. And because they don't love truth, God is going to, in just punishment, allow them to be given over to that deception and their lies. This is how it works. God says, if you as a people, you love deception and lies more than you love the light and the truth, then I'm going to continue to allow the enemy to give you what it is that you love so much. And you are gonna be caught up in worldwide deception and this man that you want to be your leader, who is the epitome of deception, he will speak for you. And so this is what Paul is addressing in nine through 12 that you have the entire world led by one antichrist who has been given over to deception and everybody on the world that loves deception follows him. So on the one hand, Paul has painted a picture of darkness and deception and lies and wickedness all led by one specific guy. Now why is that important? Because when you get into 13 through 17, well 13 through 15, Paul presents a different kind of person. Mm, don't miss this. On one hand, you have wickedness and the love of deception, but on the other hand, you have you. Those who have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. On, on this side over here, you have people who love deception, and over here, you have people who love truth. Over here, the nations are blind, and over here, you can see. 
Over here, the nations are chasing darkness, and over here, you are chasing light. The reason why Paul outlines in 13 through 15 is because he's trying to get you to understand that there is a contrast between the way the world is and the way you are now, and they are not the same. They are not compatible in any way, shape, or form. When you are made new into Christ, all of that old stuff passes away and you are completely made new. The old ways of how you used to process things and think about situations and manage your money, all of that is different now. All of that has changed. You are standing now in a completely different reality than you were in previously in the world. And in this new reality, you are no longer shaken in your mind like you used to be when you were part of the world. See, when you can't trust the words that are coming out of people's mouth, you have no foundation to build on because you don't know if what they're saying is actually true or not. Imagine being in a marriage with a person who doesn't tell the truth. How can you build any foundation or, or build on that foundation if you literally cannot even trust the words that the person is saying. This is where you came from and this is where you are now. And so since you are new, you are different, you are not part of this world that was described in nine through 12, you are now part of the 13 through 15 world, what do you do about that? Now that your reality is different and changed and all things are new, what do you do about that? The first thing Paul says is you stand firm in this new reality. You get bold in this new reality. You find rest and confidence in this new reality because now you can trust every single word that comes out of Jesus' mouth in this book. You now, you, you are not tossed by your emotions or whether this thing will work because this person said it might, but I'm not really sure. Now you can trust everything that is in here. If he says this is the way things are, you can put your full confidence in that and not be tossed around anymore. So the first thing Paul says is because you're not in this camp anymore, you're in this camp, stand firm in this camp. Have confidence in this camp. Be bold in this camp. Don't walk around shaky and worried. No, you're not like this other camp. You're different. Do you feel the Holy Spirit speaking to you today about the way that you are supposed to be walking in your faith? There should be a sense of confidence and boldness that is not present in a world that is dark and filled with deception. When you come into Christ, you stand firm in this new reality, and the second thing that he tells you to do is to hold fast to the traditions and the commands, which is basically obey God's word. So now that you're new and you're not in this world anymore, what do you do with this new life? Well, you stand firm and you obey the, the commands and traditions that have been passed down to you. What, is, what does that mean? That means if the word of God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, then you don't in your heart lust after that girl that you work with if you're married to somebody. That's what that means. That means if the word of God tells you, don't forsake the gathering of the saints, 
then you make a regular habit to find a local church, get plugged in and serve and use your gifts in that church. You don't pretend like you're exempt from the commands. You lean into the commands and you let them shape and form your very life. If the word of God tells you to not be a busybody and not be a gossip and stop trying to use the information that you know to posture yourself in such a way so that people think better of you or like you better, then you have to stop doing that. You repent of it, you turn from it, you don't lean into that lifestyle, you don't forgive that kind of lifestyle, you turn from it. That's what it means to, in this new life, hold to the traditions and the commands in the obedience of God's word. If the word of God is clear on how you're supposed to function as a Christian in a sexual context, then you obey that and repent of, of anything that is not that. If the word of God is clear that you do not, you, you cannot live your life with unforgiveness, then you have to repent of that and move forward. You cannot continue for the next 10 years holding a grudge against that person for any reason because you have been moved out of darkness and that's what dark people do. They hold grudges, they get even but you have been called out of it. You're not that anymore, you're something completely new. And in this new way, the word of God commands you to forgive in the same way you have been forgiven. Oh, imagine if Christ was holding a grudge against you. This, this short little phrase that Paul has given us in comparison to the way the world is and how we stand now is supposed to, number one, make us stand firm, number two, hold the traditions, but number three, bring us comfort in a way that we comfort others. The fact that you have left and forsaken this old world and you are a new creature, creature it, it is like wrapping yourselves in like a 1,000 thread count sheet in blanket when it's warm in the morning. You know what I'm talking about? Like on Sunday morning when the alarm goes off and it's cold out but it's warm in your sheets and you're like, I, I don't wanna move from this exact spot. You know what I'm talking about? That's the kind of comfort I want you thinking of when you're imagining what you have in Christ. Man, you don't want any part of that cold bathroom floor and you just want to stay right here where you are. That's what I'm talking about. When you see comfort, that's what I want you thinking. And what he says is that kind of comfort, I want you walking that comfort out and I want you speaking it out. That's what he says uh, as he comes to verse 17. This comfort, I want you to comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In everything that you do and everything you say, I want it rooted in this reality that you aren't over here anymore. This isn't your identity. This is not who you are. This is who you are. When the Bible commands to treat your body as a temple, then that means you need to get off nicotine. You're smoking it, you're vaping it, you're dipping it, I don't care. Your body is literally the place where God's presence resides, okay? Imagine if the tabernacle was just filled with unholy smoke on a daily basis. Do you think that the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud would have rested on an old and holy temple? No, it wouldn't have. He would have killed all of the priests in that temple who did that stuff, and we know that because that's what happened. 
Aaron's sons literally died because of that. There is a sense in which your body, being a temple of the Holy Spirit, needs to be a good steward of what he has given you. Some of y'all drink way too much coffee. You aren't running off of the grace of God. You're running off of a, of a legal drug called, nicot- or, well, called caffeine. Look, we get to a place as Christians where we put in this one pile all the nasty stuff. We can all agree, no, I don't want any part of this. Okay, so now I've turned and now I'm holy. Now, now I've achieved. But, but we, the Holy Spirit's like, yeah, but we're not done, bud. Like, take one more step. And like, oh, I don't, I don't like that. You mean, I, I, don't want to be, I don't want to talk about money and what I spend my money on because I've got a bad habit of buying things I don't need on impulse. I've got this really bad habit of just giving myself over an addictive way to things and I jump down these rabbit holes and my family doesn't see me for a week. Can I be honest with you? That's me. I have this weird part of my old nature, it's this weird like little addictive thing that if I just get my mind hooked on one little thing, I am chasing this thing for a week. It's the only thing I think about, I'm watching every YouTube video I can think about on it, and it's, it's the weirdest stuff. Sometimes it's like gadgets, one time it was quantum theory. It's all I talk about, it's all I think about. One time it was like the Chronicles of Narnia. That is a thing I have to keep in check because I am made new. I am owned and ruled and Christ reigns me. I don't reign my own flesh. I don't call my own shots. I don't get to just jump down these rabbit holes and disappear and be unavailable to people because my mind can't stop spinning. That's the thing I regularly have to pay attention to and repent of, and I'm, I'm telling you, what he's saying here is the same stuff we talked about when we talked about David's journey in First and Second Samuel. What Paul is painting for us is the idea that when you come into Christ, you are a completely new creature, and what you believe about God should profoundly change the way that you live and act and think and speak. And if you're thinking, I've joined a pretty good church, like this is kind of cool, and like, like I'll just come here every week and you know, listen to the message. Like, you, you are sadly mistaken if you think that that is the sum of following Jesus. And there's a whole lot of language about taking up your cross and laying down your own life and walking into sacrifice and dying. What you signed up for, it is going to be the hardest and most rewarding thing you have ever done in your entire life, and when you are done, you will look nothing like you did before you turned your life over to him. The moment you said, I surrender, it all starts right there and it never ends. And when we look at David's journey, he was profoundly shaped by what he believed. What, he, what God said about him profoundly changed the way he talked and lived and his value systems and everything. There was nothing off the table. He was constantly going back and saying, I'm a wreck, here I am again, another wreck. And that is the same thing Paul was trying to get us to understand. Man, when you come to Christ, your life is totally different. The expectation for you to follow him in obedience is set and it never changes from that point forward. 
There's not a point after you say, I surrender and follow him, that you lean back into idleness and, well, for this season, I'm going to just spend a little time on myself. I'm going to spend a little money on myself. I'm going to spend some of my resources on myself. I'm going to use these gifts that he gave me on myself to kind of build my own kingdom. No, that is anti-gospel. That's the kind of stuff that the anti-Christ deals in. And it is in everything. It's in how much you spend on stuff. It's on where you spend your time. It's on what you spend your mind time thinking on. It's what you, you focus your, your affections and your attentions towards. Everything is on the table. And he is like a master surgeon going through and changing everything. The way you handle situations while you're driving in traffic, the, the way that your perspective in certain situations, all of it is called into change. And Paul is saying, before he gets into the correction part of this letter, guys, you are different than the world. This is what the world looks like right now and right before he comes. It's gonna be, what it looks like right now, it's gonna be worse right before he comes. But you don't spend all of your time worrying and concerned about, because you're not in that kingdom anymore. You're in a new and better kingdom and your assignment now is to pull as many people out of that dark kingdom as possible by preaching the good news of Jesus. Now let's get into chapter three, verse one. He says, finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing good and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. All right, now Paul asks the church to pray for them. I just want you to picture for a moment. You're a member in the first century of the church of Thessalonica and Paul, the apostle Paul, gives you his prayer requests. Picture that, because that's what's happening here. Everyday average people just like you and me have been given Paul's prayer requests. And what does Paul want us to pray for? Two things. One, he wants us to pray that everything that happened in this church in Thessalonica happens everywhere he goes. Now, what happened in this church? Well, basically revival. People got completely rocked. They heard the gospel message. They turned their lives over to Jesus, and everything was changed. All of a sudden, their business didn't exist to serve their own purposes and, and fund their own desires and build their own kingdom. Now this business is, is a thing that's placed in God's hands and he's using it how he sees fit. And that's church-wide. Everybody in the church that owns a business, now their business is viewed from a completely different perspective. Now the family unit is completely different. Now the wife isn't there to serve the husband and the kids are there to shoulder the work. Now this little representation of God's community in the local family is now a training ground for God's kingdom. Now dads aren't just tolerating kids, now dads are training kids. 
Moms are not just making sure the next meal is cooked. Moms are setting a culture in that home of hospitality that people in the church come over and they have Bible studies. The moms are training their children. They're doing some kind of of work within the city. The the money that's being raised within the family, the, the kids are watching that money go out and further more missions and build God's kingdom. And now the family unit doesn't exist just for the family itself. It exists as a tool in the hands of God to accomplish his kingdom. When this message hit Thessalonica and the believers started digesting it, everything was different. People showed up to church with a different attitude. There was an expectancy in the air when people showed up. When they walked into the room, they had the expectation, God is in this place, and I'm gonna sing to the maker of the universe. And when the word of God is taught and we read Paul's letters, I believe that the Holy Spirit is gonna use those words to profoundly shape and change the very person that I am. Then in five years from now, people won't even recognize who I was. Paul says, I want you to pray that what happened in your church, this beautiful, vibrant, alive, in the midst of persecution kind of faith, I want you to pray that that what happens in your church, I want you to pray that it happens in every church. I want you to stop acting like you've got a lock on something in your city. There are other churches in other regions and I want you praying for them to experience the kind of transformation and life giving affirmation that you have received in your church. I want you to pray for revival in all of the churches. The second prayer request is I want you to pray that we will be delivered from wicked men and evil men. Now these two requests, they're not just a historical record of Paul's prayer requests. These are not just Paul's words. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, and these words are God breathing through Paul's words. So these are not just a historical record of Paul's prayer requests. These are actually requests that the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit wants you to start incorporating into your prayer time. The stuff that Paul cared about should become the kind of stuff that you care about. So when you find yourself on a daily basis, like, man, I probably should pray more, but I don't know what to pray for. Here's two things you can add at the top of your list. Number one, start praying for the churches in this city. Pray for every church, even the one you left from, that you're still mad at. Pray for them. Pray that God would send revival to that church. Pray that God would just grip the pastor and the leaders of that church and would tenderize their heart so that they are no longer concerned about the things of this world or building a kingdom for themselves. Pray for the church in the city that God would send revival to that place. That the moment that the pastor stands up to begin to preach the faithful word of God, the people's hearts are gripped and they begin to weep because they've said, I've lived in in this camp over here and I'm functioning as a non-believer and yet I'm calling myself a Christian. I've got to repent. I've got to turn. Pray that in the local church, business owners start understanding the importance of God using that that business as a tool for, to build his kingdom and not their own personal kingdom. And pray that the local church is filled with families that have dads that love their kids and don't just tolerate their kids. 
Pray that the church is filled with people that, that, the kind, that fill, fill with the kind of people where the moms love their children and don't constantly try to pay or find other people to raise them. They're not caught up in this belief system that when I look at the world, I can have everything and I don't have to sacrifice or say no to anything. I can have everything all the while the children suffer because the government is raising the kids and not the parents. What what Paul is trying to present to us is the kind of prayer that would change the country we live in right now. We are convinced because people have told us that if you want to see change, you have to legislate change. Well, we've been legislating change for 200 years and we're not in a good spot. That doesn't work. You wanna change the course of this country, just this country, not the world. The world will come, but if we're just talking about right now, this city, this country, how do you change the course of this city? You start working on the families. You work on dads, you work on moms, those, that unit works on children, and though that unit starts assembling with other units who are focusing in on that, and all of a sudden you've got an alive and vibrant church. It starts at the family. It doesn't start above that and then we work down. It starts from that level and we work up. And this is what Paul is saying. The vibrancy in the local church, it, is made, it exists because it is filled with people, individuals who are part of families and their families, they love God more than anything. And when they gather and they worship, that joy that exists in the home, man, it overflows to everything else. And it builds your faith and you go home and, and you're challenged and, and you see this guy over here and like, man, when, when, I, when I see the way this guy interacts with his sons or his, his daughters, like, I'm convicted. I want that. See, that's why community is so important. Because in a vacuum, you have nothing to compare. There's no mirror for you to hold up and see if the way that you're living is actually the way you're supposed to be living. You're just, you, you just keep patting yourself on, a bat, on your back. There's no one who, who comes up to you and, and, and just by the way they're living puts a finger in your chest and says, buddy, you're out of whack. The way you speak, the way you talk, the way you live, the way you treat your wife, the, like it's off, man. That's not how Christ loved. That's not how Christ served. He does it to the moms, he does it to the dads, and when you get in community, what you do is you, you start seeing like, oh, there's another way to do this. Why do I do things this way? Well, you do things that way because you watched your dad do things that way. And maybe your dad wasn't a believer. Or maybe your dad came from a different kind of culture in the church, and we can either just keep reproducing the same church culture we've always produced, or we can do what Paul's inviting us to do and start praying for revival. Pray that the word of God speeds ahead and is honored. It speeds ahead in the homes of the people at the church. When it goes forth, it's convicting. It speeds ahead in the city. It speeds ahead in the workplace. And when it does speed ahead, it is honored in the community. When you're sitting at the coffee shop and you're talking about Jesus, you pray that in that town, when the name of Jesus is proclaimed, people in that town honor it. They don't give you a shifty look or like, you know, try to shush you out the door. No, no, they want you 
in their place of business because people like you make the world a better place. You bring a kind of joy to this environment that doesn't exist if your people, Christians, you don't come and join it. So this is what he's praying. He's praying for revival and the word of God speeds ahead, but then he also prays for deliverance from wicked and evil men. Why do we have to pray for that? Because this world, this world is filled with wicked and evil men. Now part of us is like, well, God knows that there's wicked and evil men. Wouldn't God just on his initiative just like take care of his people and keep those, that from? Well, yeah, absolutely, I believe that. But I also believe that there is precedent for God to want his people to pray for that. So if you've gotta put gas in your car, and it's 10 o'clock at night, and it's a high crime side of town, before you leave the house, pray. Lord, keep evil and wicked men away from me. Pray over your children when they go to school. Lord, in this school, keep wicked and evil men out of that school. And if they're coaching softball, get them out of there. If they're perverts who only have that job to prey on these kids, get them out of there. If it's a, if it's a, a kid or, 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 or somebody who, uh, who has a troubled past and their only desire is to want to shoot up that school, God, when my kid goes to school, protect them from wicked and evil men and make a hedge around that school so that literally those evil men can't even get on campus. And when Christians start praying that way and crime goes down, guess what the world is going to want to do? Well, half of them are going to want to curse us because they love wickedness, but the other half is going to look at that and say, I want what you're selling. I don't have that kind of stability in my life. I don't have that kind of peace in my life, but I want it. So tell me about the God that you serve. This is what Paul is trying to present. So at this point, he closes the letter and now he brings in the warning. Let's go to verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so if there's any ambiguity about what he's about to say, it's a command. I command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were there with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, meaning, we're apostles bringing you the good news. There is a certain right that if we're coming to labor among you that we could reap the benefits. We should be able to take up an offering. But we didn't do any of that because I didn't want to be a burden to you. I wanted to give you in ourselves an example that you could imitate. For even when we were with you, we, could, we would give you this command. Here's the command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. But listen, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul, in the, in the first letter, introduces this idea that there are people in the church who are living an idle life. Now when we say idle life, what do we mean? We mean people who are not actively connected into the community of God, but instead of being part of God's family and contributing and, and, and uh, using their gifts to serve in the community, uh, they are uh, being freeloaders. They don't work, they've quit their jobs, they show up every week and they ask for uh, an offering or a handout because, not because they can't work, they don't want to work. They're refusing to do what, what Paul set the example for them to do. They come every single week and all they do is ask for handouts. And they don't participate, they only consume. Paul is struggling with some in the church who have a very consumer mentality. This church exists for me, I do not exist for it. I am not here to serve and contribute and be a part of the family. This church is here to meet my needs. And it shows itself because I get mad when they don't sing the songs I like, when the preacher goes too long or he says stuff that steps on my toes and I don't like, when I want something and they don't give it to me immediately, when I can't treat this place like my apartment and just leave trash whenever and show up whenever and act like somebody else is gonna come up and clean my mess. This is what that word idleness it encompasses, it's all of that stuff. It is a Christian who is the opposite of being plugged in and part of the community and contributing to build God's kingdom. It is the opposite of that. And this seems to be an issue in the church because Paul addressed in the last letter and now he's expounding on this, uh, this uh, warning in the second letter. So the church issue is that some in the church, they don't wanna work, they don't wanna be a part of God's community and they literally don't even wanna hold a job. Now. There are, depending on what commentator you ask, there's different opinions on the root of this. Some would say it's connected to the patron culture in Rome. There was a thing in Rome where wealthy people would find somebody who had some level of skill or aptitude and they would pay for this person to go to college and get some kind of education and then this, this wealthy person would reap the benefits because they pulled this other person up. Well, that's one, one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is maybe these people are just reaping the generosity of the church. The church is, is filled with people who are just really generous because Christ has been generous to them. And so what they're doing is they're just making funds and resources available to anybody and people are taking advantage of that. Now all of those are possible options, but based off of the fact that in 1 Thessalonians and in 2 Thessalonians, Paul spent a, a great deal of time talking about the return of Jesus, I think that the issue of idleness in the church is connected to option three, the return of Jesus. I think what you have here is people refusing to go to work because they wanna sit around and just wait for Jesus' return. And it's creating a church filled with busybodies and freeloaders. 
And Paul responds to the issue with an appeal from his own life. He says, I want you to think back when I was with you. What kind of culture did I set? What example did I model for you? Did I just freeload off of you? Did I refuse to work? No, I was the complete opposite of that. The example I was trying to set for you was one of hard work and diligence. I wanted, to, I wanted you to see me spending my entire life on Christ. That's what I wanted you to see. That this other stuff that seems so important, it's not important because Christ is most important. And I modeled this for you. And now if you've got people in the church who are not doing or following the example that I set, here's what I want you to do. I want you to disassociate with them. I want you to tell those people in a loving way that they either change or they can't be a part of God's community anymore. I don't want you to treat them like an enemy, but I, I want you to treat them as a, a brother who's being warned. Now what in the world is Paul doing here? Because this seems like the opposite of the advice we would give, right? Don't kick people out of church. Church is where they need to be. They need to hear the good news. Well, the problem is that they've heard the good news and they don't want to follow it. This isn't an issue of somebody not having access to the truth. This is an issue of someone having access to the truth and they don't like it. And so what Paul does is he says, my goal for everyone is transformation, okay? It's not excommunication, I don't want to kick people out, but my fundamental goal in discipleship is the transformation of God's people. So if you won't listen to scripture and repent, the only thing that we can do for you is to cut you off the community because what I want you to understand is what you're gonna lose if you refuse to repent. Seeing being kicked out of the church or being, uh, or, or, or having disassociation and, and, and cutting off believers who are just lazy and idle and don't wanna take their faith seriously, that is nothing compared to having Jesus tell you at the end of the age, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. Lord, Lord, don't call me Lord. I wasn't your Lord, really. You were your own Lord and you did whatever you wanted to do. So don't come at me and say, Lord, Lord, depart from me. I never knew you. And so what Paul is doing is he's leveraging community to help the person who refuses to repent understand what's on the line. Loss is on the line. And in orders of magnitude, losing a community is nothing compared to losing the community in heaven and losing eternity. So in the hopes that you might lose community and realize what you've lost and turn and return back into community, that is the basis on which Paul sets the argument to disassociate with people who are lazy Christians. Now when we read this, we think to ourselves, oh, well, Paul, that's, that seems unloving. Why would you ever kick somebody out? Well, we have that tendency because our view of love is warped. When we say, well, we can't do that to somebody because it's not loving, what you're doing is showing your hand and revealing what your definition of love is. 
was reading through Mere Christianity written by C.S. Lewis a couple weeks ago and I came across this quote and he was talking about the time in which he lived in and it's only gotten worse. But he says that scripture tells us very clearly that God is love. But in our world, love is God. And that is why we have the issues we have today. Because we have taken love and we have fashioned it into an idol and it is now the God that we serve. And the problem with making our own gods is we refashion them if the, if, if the way that we have fashioned them uh, becomes uncomfortable for us. So if we say this is what love looks like and then we're presented with a situation where this thing doesn't serve this, then we just reshape what love is and we keep reshaping it and keep redefining what love is so that it suits whatever situation that we're given. But we're not told that love is God, God is love, and therefore God is supposed to be defining for us what love is. So if scripture tells us that the most loving thing that you can do is tell somebody if you don't repent, you're gonna be broken from community from me in the hopes that you'll understand what loss is and then turn back to him, then you have to trust that that's what love is and not your weak definition of it. Now, I'm telling you, this seems the, like the complete opposite of the world that we're living in, the complete opposite of many churches when they preach what love and what to, love looks more like tolerance. Love looks like not saying the truth, but Paul clearly here is giving us a different understanding of what love is. And he's saying the best thing that you could do is to tell the truth in love, to reveal what the truth is so that it doesn't come across as well, that looks different than what you said last week. Now, if you go to verse 16, after Paul gives this admonishment, he goes into his benediction or his closing. If you go to verse 16, it says this, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So Paul closes this letter with a genuine uh, signature of authenticity. He's saying these are my very words, they're not a third party or some AI generated sermon. It's funny, like as a pastor, you get all these weird things in your email box, and the one that I've gotten over and over the last couple of weeks is um, somebody has created an, an AI generated, an AI sermon generator. AI sermon, a, what is it called? AI Sermon Pro. And they're trying to get me to like buy into the service, because if you do, man, like you just have access to all of uh, AI, I don't know, like it'll write the sermons for you. And I'm telling you, there is a great falling away coming. The idea that like this is even a thing that somebody said, man, this would be really helpful for pastors. No, it's not. This is such a, the wrong direction. God, it just, it sets so many things in motion for the book of Revelation to come true. So I'll just leave it there. But Paul, before AI, is saying, look guys, these are my words, all right? 
This is my, I'm writing this to you. And so you, you don't have to worry, did something get lost in translation? These are literally my words. God is speaking through Paul to this church, but Paul, God is not just speaking to this church, he's speaking to us today. So we have to ask ourselves as we close, what is God trying to say through this letter to us? Well, here's my summary. That there is no room for lazy, casual church attenders in eternity. I had a great conversation with a brother the other day, and he told me, when I started coming to this church, I feel like there is more expected of me. Praise God. (laughs) Yes and amen. That is the, yes, that is the direction we're headed. Amen. I could not have said it better myself. There is no room in eternity for just pew sitters. This world that we live in is God's vineyard. And when he returns, he wants to return to people who have a plow in their hand and sweat on their brow. Not people who are popping olives in their mouth, sitting under a tree in the shade, letting everyone else do the work. So what is Paul's message to us through the power of the Holy Spirit today? It is there is so much work to be done in the vineyard of God, which is the entire world. And so rather than being caught idle on the day he returns, be found hard at work. That is the edification for you. Now, I can't tell you what hard at work looks like because the vineyard is so vast and so intricate and so different that whatever he's called you to is vastly different than what he's called me to. There are a couple things across the board that are the same for all of us. All of us need to be reading scripture every single day. All of us need to be in prayer every single day, all day. All of us need to be sharing the gospel message with people. All of us need to be praying, Lord, Cover my children at school. Keep them from evil and wicked men. Send revival to churches in this town. All of us should be saying, God, give me an opportunity to share my faith. And when you sit down at lunch and the waiter shows up and the spirit says, hey, here's your opportunity. You don't cower. You seize that. You take that opportunity to share what God has done in your life and you share your testimony. Those are all the same across the board, but some of you, you, you own a business, some of you, you teach at a school, some of you, you're, you're a grandparent to like 9,000 children, and your responsibility is to care for whatever corner of the vineyard he's given you. Some of you in here, you, you, you grew up thinking like, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make my dent in this world one day, and now you've realized that the dent you're making, the greatest thing you will ever do in your life is raise that child God has given you. That's the best, that's the greatest thing you'll ever do with your life because God's gonna use that child to accomplish bigger and better things. What a humbling thing to just say, look, I'm not in charge of those acres. I'm in charge of this tiny little plot right here. And when Jesus returns, he's gonna find me right here not over there in somebody else's little patch, right here with sweat on my brow and a tool in my hand doing his work. That's the message of First and Second Thessalonians. Jesus is coming back. What is he going to find you doing when he returns? Let's pray. 
Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless. 